Section number 30 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emilio Caputo. The World's Story, Volume 15. The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 30. The Battle of Cambrai, 1917, by Philip Gibbs. The last great battle of 1917 was fought by the British and Germans, November 20th to December 12th, for possession of the strategic city of Cambrai. Under Sir Julian Byng, the British attacked suddenly on a 32-mile front between St. Quentin and the Scarp, and penetrated the so-called and supposedly impregnable Hindenburg Line to a depth of five miles. The attack was led by hundreds of tanks and was irresistible. Many prisoners and guns were taken. The victory was even greater than anticipated, hence the British were not able to sustain it at all points. And the Germans, by massing heavy reinforcements from the Eastern Front, succeeded in driving the British back part way, taking prisoner about 6,000 men and numbers of guns. The battle was almost continuous for 20 days and was one of the most sanguinary of the war. The description below is from cable dispatches to the current history magazine of the New York Times. The Editor The enemy yesterday, November 20th, 1917, had, I am sure, the surprise of his life on the Western Front, where, without any warning by ordinary preparations that are made before a battle, without any sign of strength in men and guns behind the British front, without a single shot fired before the attack, and with his great belts of hideously strong wire still intact, the British troops suddenly assaulted him at dawn, led forward by great numbers of tanks, smashed through his wire, passed beyond to his trenches, and penetrated in many places the main Hindenburg line, and the Hindenburg support beyond. To my mind, it is the most sensational and dramatic episode of this year's fighting, brilliantly imagined and carried through with the greatest secrecy. Not a whisper of it had reached men like myself who were always up and down the lines, and since the secret of the tanks themselves, which suddenly made their appearance on the Somme last year, this is, I believe, the best-kept secret of the war. How could the enemy guess, in his wildest nightmare, that a blow would be struck quite suddenly at that Hindenburg line of his. Enormously strong in redoubts, tunnels, and trenches, and without any artillery preparation or any sign of gunpowder behind the British front. The enemy had withdrawn many of his guns from this quiet sector, and he did not know that during recent nights great numbers of tanks had been crawling along the roads toward Avrincourt, and the British lines below Flesquier Ridge, hiding by day in the copses of this wooded and rolling country beyond Peron et Bapom. Indeed, he knew little of all that was going on before him under the cover of darkness. Most of the prisoners say that the first thing they knew of the attack was when, out of the mist, they saw the tanks advancing upon them, smashing down their wire, crawling over their trenches and nosing forward with gunfire and machine gunfire 
slashing from their sides. The Germans were aghast and dazed. Many hid down in their dugouts and tunnels and then surrendered. Only the steadiest and bravest of them rushed to the machine guns and got them into action and used their rifles to snipe the British. Out of the silence, which had prevailed behind the British lines, a great fire of guns came upon the Germans. They knew they had been caught by an amazing stratagem, and they were full of terror. Behind the tanks, coming forward in platoons, the infantry swarmed, cheering and shouting, trudging through the thistles while the tanks made a scythe of machine gun fire in front of them, and thousands of shells went screaming over the Hindenburg lines. The German artillery made but a feeble answer. Their gun positions were being smothered by the fire of all the British batteries. There were not many German batteries, and the enemy's infantry could get no great help from them. They were caught. German officers knew they had been caught, like rats in a trap. It was their black day. I think all the British felt the drama of this adventure, and had the thrill of it. A thrill which I had believed had departed out of war because of the ferocity of shell-fire and the staleness of war's mechanism and formula of attack. A mass of cavalry was brought up and hidden very close to the enemy's lines, ready to make a sweeping drive should the Hindenburg line be pierced by the advance of the tanks over the great belts of barbed wire and the deep, wide trenches of the strongest lines on the western front. Yesterday, I saw the cavalry in all this country waiting for their orders to saddle up and get their first great chance. I was astounded to see them there and was stirred by a great thrill of excitement, not without some tragic foreboding. Because after seeing much of the war on this front, and coming straight from Flanders, with its terrifying artillery and frightful barrages, it seemed to me incredible that after all, cavalry should ride out into the open and round up the enemy. I had seen the Hindenburg line up by Bullecourt and Coyant, and knew the strength of it, and the depth of the barbed wire belts that surround it. The cavalry were in the highest of spirits and full of tense expectation. Young cavalry officers galloped past smiling and called out a cheery, Good morning, like men who have had good sport ahead. In the folds of land toward the German lines, there were thousands of cavalry horses, massed in parks, with their horse artillery limbered up and ready for their ride. This morning, very early, in the steady rain and wet mist, I saw squadrons of them going into action, and it was the most stirring sight I had seen for many a long day in this war, one which I sometimes thought I should never live to see. They rode past me as I walked along the road through our newly captured ground and across the Hindenburg line. They streamed by at a quick trot, and the noise of the horses' hooves was a strange, rushing sound. Rain slashed down upon their steel hats, their capes were glistening, and mud was flung up to the horses' flanks, as in long columns they went up and down the rolling country, and cantered up the steep track, making a wide curve around two great mine craters and roads which the enemy had blown up in his retreat. It was a wonderful picture to see and remember. Other squadrons of cavalry had already gone ahead and had been fighting in the open country since midday yesterday, 
after crossing the bridges at Masnier and Marcoing, which the enemy did not have time to destroy. They had done well. One squadron rode down a battery of German guns, and a patrol had ridden into Flasquier village when the Germans were still there. Still, other bodies of cavalry had swept around German machine-gun emplacements and German villages, and drawn many prisoners into their net. The drama was far beyond the most fantastic imagination. This attack on the Hindenburg lines before Cambrai has never been approached on the Western Front, and the first act began when the tanks moved forward, before dawn, toward the long, wide belts of wire, which they had to destroy before the rest could follow. These squadrons of tanks were led into action by the general commanding their corps, who carried his flag on his own tank, a most gallant man full of enthusiasm for his monsters and their brave crews, and determined that this day should be theirs. To every officer and man of the tanks he sent this order of the day before the battle. The tank corps expects that every tank this day will do its damnedest. The German troops knew nothing of the fate that awaited them, until out of the gloom of dawn they saw these great numbers of grey, inhuman creatures bearing down upon them. A German officer whom I saw today, one out of thousands of prisoners who had been taken, described his own sensations. At first he could not believe his eyes. He seemed in some horrible nightmare and thought he had gone mad. After that, from his dugout, he watched all the tanks trampling about, crunching down the wire, heaving themselves across his trenches and searching about for machine gun emplacements, while his man ran about in terror, trying to avoid the bursts of fire and crying out in surrender. Some of the German troops kept their nerve and served their machine guns, firing between the tanks at British infantry, but the tanks dealt with them and silenced them. Some of the German snipers fired at the British at a few yards, and the infantry dealt with them masterfully. But, for the most part, the enemy broke as soon as the tanks were on them and fled or surrendered. A few of the tanks had had bad luck, and I saw these cripples this morning, where they were overturned by shell fire or had become bogged. Elsewhere I saw one or two which had buried their noses deep into the soft earth and lay overturned, or lay head downward over deep banks down which they had tried to crawl. But the tank casualties were light, and large numbers of them went ahead and fought all day up in Flesquier Ridge and round the Chateau of Avrincourt, where the enemy held out for some time, and across the bridges of Marcoing and Masnier, and up to the neighborhood of Noyelle and Graincourt, and beyond Ribicourt. The attack of the Ulster battalions on the first two days of the battle was a hard, grim episode of the general action, and ground was gained only by the most persistent endeavors and courage. These men, newly down from the Battle of Flanders where they had terrible and tragic fighting, were determined to go far in this new field and their spirit was high. They had no tanks to cut the wire in front of them, as those machines were concentrated in large numbers on the right wing of the attack. The Ulstermen had the Hindenburg trenches before them, wide belts of wire, and beyond the trenches the deep ditch of the Canal du Nord, a most formidable series of defenses. They 
had to break down the wire in front of them by bomb explosions and under heavy machine gun fire from the trenches in the further side of the canal bank where the Germans were in concrete blockhouses and strong emplacements. At first, they broke their way through all obstacles in spite of being hung up by wire here and there and the harassing fire of snipers, and they cleared the trenches of the men who were demoralized by the surprise and suddenness of the attack. Later, some of the Ulstermen came up against a high spoil bank, or waste heap, 60 feet high from the canal bank, and defended from tunnel dugouts underneath it. About 8.30 in the morning, they captured the spoil heap and a crowd of prisoners in the dugouts, and then tried to get astride the Cambrai Road and across the canal. A gallant little body of Belfast men, all from shipbuilding works on Queen's Island, worked for hours under fire to build a bridge across and repaired the destroyed causeway so that the infantry could pass. It was done before dusk, and the Ulstermen seized the way across the Cambrai Road, but could not cross the canal or get forward very far owing to the fierce machine-gun fire that swept down upon them from the east side of the canal, where the enemy was holding Mouvray and Graincourt. As the British troops advanced and the various villages were captured, the French civilians, who had for three years been under German domination, were released. The scenes at the liberation of these people are thus described by Mr. Gibbs in a cable letter written on November 22nd. The people I saw today gathered together in a ruined village in the heart of all these new scenes of war, with the tide of cavalry streaming up the roads with tanks crawling on the hillsides and guns firing across the open fields and new batches of German prisoners tramping down under escort, haggard and dazed by the swift turn of fortune's wheel, which had flung them into British hands when they seemed so safe behind their great lines, were all from Massenier, near Marcoing, where 450 of them had awaited the coming of the English in feverish excitement since they heard the approach of the advance guards. They were pitiful groups of men, women, and children. Pitiful because of their helplessness in this corner of war among the guns. Some of the women had babies with them, in perambulators and wooden boxes on wheels, into which also they had tucked a few things from their abandoned homes. Some of them were young women, neatly dressed, but all plastered with mud after the tramp across the battlefields and woefully bedraggled. Some of the little girls had brought their dogs with them, and one child had a bird in a cage. There were sturdy peasants among them, and old folk, with wrinkled faces and frightened eyes because of this strange adventure in their old age and young men of military age, who had not been taken away like most of their comrades for forced labor because their work was useful to the enemy in their own district. This was the case of a good-looking young barber to whom I talked, who had shaved the German officers and men for three years in Massenier. These people looked woe-begone as they waited in the ruins for the English lorries to take them away to safety. But in their hearts there was great joy, as I found when I talked to them, because they were on the British side of the lines and out of reach of the enemy, whom they hate bitterly because of the discipline put upon them and their servitude, and most of all, and all in all, because he is the enemy of their country 
and the destroyer of their land and blood. They told me that after the coming of the Germans in the early days of the war, when the Uhlans entered Massnier and fought with French and English cavalry at Crevecourt, where our cavalry was again fighting yesterday, they had no liberty and no property. The Germans requisitioned everything. They took their pigs and their poultry and their grain and their wine. If a peasant hit a hen, he was heavily fined or put in prison. If he was discovered with a bottle of wine, he was fined ten francs or put in prison. Mr. Gibbs gave this graphic and interesting description of the battlefield in a cable letter dated November 25th. The way up to Havrincourt village on the ridge to the west of Flesquier by a stone cross five centuries old dedicated to St. Hubert, the patron saint of huntsmen, before the tanks went on a hunting on a fine November morning was littered with things the Germans had left behind. Field gray overcoats, shrapnel helmets, innumerable pairs of boots, goatskin pouches, rifles, bayonets, bandoliers, tunics, gas masks. It was as if great numbers of men had thrown everything away from them in a moment of great terror and had fled naked from their fear. I went out into the open country. Outstretched before me was the whole panorama of this battle. I went up to the edge of it, as close as one could go without getting into the furnace fires. All around me were the swirl and turmoil of the battlefield. Everywhere, tanks were crawling over the ground, some of them moving forward into action, some of them out of action, mortally wounded. Some of them, like battle cruisers of the land, going forward in reconnaissance. Less than 200 yards away from me was a town on fire. It was grain court, and the enemy was knocking hell out of it, in revenge for its capture. It had been my intention to go there, but I stopped short of it, and was glad I had gone no farther. Shell after shell burst among its roofs and walls without ceasing for several hours. Red brick cottages went up in clouds of rosy smoke with flames in the heart of it, the enemy's shells burst in grain court with so many colors, green, purple, orange, rose, and pink, that it was a wonderful poem in color, but as tragic as the death that was there. The Germans retaliated on November 30th by delivering two flank and a center attack, southwest of Cambrai, on a wide front, and succeeded in surprising one weaker section of the British line, where 4,000 men were captured with some territory, compelling the British a few days later to withdraw from about one-third of the advance they had previously made. This bloody attack is described as follows. The assault began at 8.40 o'clock. The enemy went over the ridge between these Meuves and Berlin woods in dense masses. As they swept down the slope toward the Bapaume-Cambray road, they came under the fire of the British artillery. The British gunners had so many targets that they hardly knew where to begin shooting but immediately poured a veritable deluge of shells into the advancing German ranks. British machine guns and rifles also took part in the sanguinary business. The Germans fell by scores as they advanced over the ridge in close formation, but they kept coming on. British infantrymen were thrown into the battle line for a counterattack, and hot fighting ensued. The Germans succeeded in penetrating to the vicinity of the Bapaume-Cambray Highway, northwest of Graincourt, but this was as far as they were able to get. Notwithstanding their terrible losses, 
The Germans continued to rush over the ridge in waves all day and always with the same result. They came under an intense fire and were mown down in great numbers. Late in the day, British counterattacks succeeded in pushing the enemy back to virtually the same line that they had left. Farther to the south, the Germans broke through the British front south of Villers Guislain, and by executing a turning movement to the north, succeeded in enveloping Gauchewood, Gouzelcourt, Gonalou, and La Vacherie. The Germans followed their advantage by continuing their attacks on December 1st with fresh fury. The correspondent describes the battle for the village of Masnières as follows. Nine separate counter-attacks launched against Masnières by strong German forces yesterday were all repulsed after most sanguinary fighting, although the British pulled their line back somewhat to lessen the sharp salient there. An intense battle raged all day, and it is stated that the British killed more Germans between daylight and dark than in any similar period since the war began. It was practically a continuous fight from the start of the first counterattack. The enemy infantry kept surging forward in waves, and as each came up it was caught by the fire from the artillery, rifles, and machine guns. The attacking forces were mowed down like wheat before the wind, but with characteristic Prussian discipline, they continued to fill their ranks and advance until the ninth assault had failed. During the afternoon, the Germans succeeded in capturing La Rue Verte, a suburb south of Massenier, but a British counterattack pushed the enemy out again. The British had to encounter ten German attacks in great force, advancing into the suburbs of La Rue Verte under the protection of a frightful bombardment. They repulsed these attacks ten times with a machine gun and rifle fire until the enemy officers sent back word that their position in this suburb was untenable and they had to retreat from the annihilating fire. But, by this time, Massenière was at the end of a sharp salient, formed by the enemy's gain of the ridge below, and during the night, according to orders, the British withdrew, unknown to the Germans, who were busy with their dead and wounded. Even on Sunday morning, the Germans did not know that not a single English soldier remained in Massenière, and they bombarded it anew before sending forward more stormtroops in the afternoon when they discovered its abandonment. The Germans continued their battle on the 2nd and 3rd, employing great forces. They approached Le Vacherie from the east and southeast, and at the outset it appeared that the attack was comparatively local. In their first charge, the enemy came up against a stone wall, and they were forced to fall back. They kept coming in waves, however. They finally won a footing in the town, but immediately were ejected. Intense fighting at close quarters followed. In the early dawn, on December 4th, the British withdrew from the Berlin salient, to a depth varying from a half to two and a half miles. The readjustment of the lines was effected without any losses to the British, and left them in possession of about two-thirds of the territory originally captured. Fierce artillery exchanges between the two fronts continued day and night from the 6th to the 12th, and there were indications that the Germans were amassing immense forces for another great offensive. End of section 30. This recording is in the public domain.